Like many of you, I love the sacred music of the church and appreciate the many styles and genres expressed in worship. Music lifts and opens our souls to the Lord. And while we all might have our personal preferences of what we like, we know that it's designed to glorify and magnify and honor God. It's hard to explain how God meets us in music. The supernatural experience of singing a simple chorus or listening to a swelling pipe organ or clapping our hearts out with a gospel choir is an experience we can't necessarily describe. The Spirit moves in us and we are transported to the heavenly throne of God where we connect with Him in profound ways. This week as I was writing this sermon, a hymn kept coming to my mind. The theology found in some of those old pieces of music stay with us, don't they? Somehow the truth of God gets lodged in our hearts from singing hymns and although they're not equal to scripture, God uses them to remind us who Christ is and who we are in him. In 1886, Dwight L. Moody was leading a revival in Massachusetts. Moody had been a young businessman who decided to devote himself to serving the Lord through evangelism and evangelistic crusades and education and all different kinds of things. And large audiences clamored to hear him speak. And he was not formally educated beyond the fifth grade. And he's best known for his simple yet powerful presentations of the gospel, where he pointedly appealed to the hearts of listeners and countless, countless people came to know Christ. At this particular revival in 1886, Moody was accompanied by Daniel Towner, who was singing and conducting the music that evening. And Towner told the story that after the preaching, during the time of testimony, a young man stood up to talk about how he had personally been impacted by Jesus that night. And he said this, he said, I'm not quite sure but I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. And Towner grabbed a piece of paper and wrote down trust and obey and sent it to Reverend John H. Samus who wrote the hymn around a tune that Towner had already penned. And here's the first stanza of trust and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his goodwill, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Today, our scripture looks like it's about rest, which it is, but it's really about trust. When we think about it, this makes sense to us. Augustine said, our souls are restless till we find our rest in you, O God. While many scriptures contrast Christians and non-Christians, the conversation here is about those who believe wholeheartedly 
versus those who believe on their own terms. The author is telling us that until we decide to trust in God for his will, until we believe fully in his care for us, until we decide to completely obey, our souls have a difficult time settling down. We will not know his rest. And there may come a time that we give up, that we cease to care because we have no peace. Remember, this epistle was written to people who were in the process of drifting away from Jesus, the one who is greater, who can be trusted with every part of who we are. But it's one thing to know about him and quite another to put our full reliance on him. So with this in mind, we're going to turn to Hebrews 4, 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest is still open, let us take care that none of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For indeed, the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, as in my anger I swore, they shall not enter my rest, though his works were finished at the foundation of the world. For in one place it speaks about the seventh day as follows, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place it says, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains open for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, again he sets a certain day, today, saying through David much later in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later about another day. So then a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. Let us pray. Lord, we trust you. Help us, God, to trust you more. Amen. This is a complex passage to follow. Because the writer is a profound thinker, there are a few different avenues we could take. For our time today, we're going to focus on the idea of commitment to God. The young man who stood up at the Moody Revival was expressing a decision that he had made to trust in the Lord, to obey God no matter what. The writer of Hebrews is telling the audience they need to up their commitment to God. Still using the model of the Israelites, he's encouraging full trust by telling people to have faith, to be obedient, and to take a pause from work. Making these actions part of our everyday life will lead us to the rest that only God can give. Speaking of which, the notion of rest in the Bible is found in various places with multiple meanings. There are different ideas of rest woven throughout this passage, and the full meaning that the writer is trying to convey is ambiguous. We see here 
the promised land of rest. We see Sabbath rest. We see eternal rest. There is also a rest alluded to here that comes from God when he carries our burdens, which we might call peace. To rest is to cease from work and also from striving in a way that we let go of anxiety and insecurity. As our creator, God is the only one who can offer us the kind of rest we long for. Only when we are in a place of trusting him can we fully enter into the rest our souls need. Yet somehow we believe that we are only free when we are in control of our lives when we're making decisions for ourselves, when we are reliant on no one, when we are in charge. But the truth is, we are only free when we are submitted to God, when we are submitted to what he wants for us. Anyone who has ever wrestled with the Lord understands this. He is gracious, but he will absolutely have his way. Let's also remember that having rest doesn't come about from doing nothing, however much time and money we spend in order to gain that time we have to do nothing. It isn't just about leisure or being lazy. In fact, this passage in Hebrews reminds us how active God's people have to be in order to obtain this rest. The main idea here is how the promises of God are still alive to those who trust him. And what does trusting him again mean from this passage? It means having faith, choosing to obey, and pausing from work. We begin by focusing on faith, which is a choice we make when confronted with what God has planned. In the first two verses here, the writer is still talking about the Israelites as a negative example, carrying over what we discussed last week. And the writer is saying, it's too late for those who died in the wilderness, but you, church, you can still reach the place of promise God has for you. God dramatically saved the Israelites, yet many of them lost their faith in the desert. Let's take care, the writer is saying, to make sure that that doesn't happen to you also. The good news is, is that the promise of God is still available. It's still open. You can still find it, they say. You just don't want to miss it. The story being alluded to here is from Numbers 13 and 14. Finally, finally, after 40 years, the children of Israel were ready to go into the land, the promised land where God had led them. They were right on the cusp. They were right on the edge, just ready to walk. So before they did that, they sent 12 men over to Canaan to see what it was like. And when the scouts returned, there was mixed reviews of what had been seen. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, thought it was an amazing place of possibility. And that, yeah, there are going to be some issues, but God clearly is, is calling them over and he's going to be with them and he is going to help them. But the other 10, they thought it was great too, but they were afraid. They were afraid that the people who already were in the land were stronger. 
And so they stirred up the fellow Israelites against going in. They literally rebelled against God. They didn't just express their fear and try and work it through. They actively pushed against God's plan, crying out again, we want to go back to Egypt, threatening to stone their leaders. And all those who did that, all those who lacked faith in God's future were instantly barred from entering the promised land of rest. Their consequence was that they were going to have to stay in the wilderness for another 40 years until everyone over the age of 20 died. Interestingly, the next morning, those who had disbelieved, who had stirred up this huge riot, changed their mind and said, no, 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 we want to go after all. We repent, we're sorry. But God, through Moses, said no. Let me tell you a story that illustrates a little bit of a point that I want to make about this. John Kavanaugh was a philosophy professor and a brilliant ethicist at St. Louis University. And at the beginning of his journey in the mid-1970s, he spent a year in prayer and service in readiness to become a Jesuit priest. And during that time, he went to Calcutta to work with Mother Teresa. He spent a month ministering at the House of Dying which was a former temple converted into a home for women and men who were found near death um, on the streets. His job was to feed and clean these dear people who were close to God's heart, giving them dignity and alleviating their suffering. One day, Kavanaugh had some time with Mother Teresa and he asked if she would pray for him as he was trying to figure out his path. He was trying to figure out what his plans for his life were going to be for the future. And she said, what would you like me to pray for? And he then uttered the request that he had traveled thousands of miles to talk to her about. And he said, clarity, please pray that I have clarity. No, Mother Teresa said, I will not do that. When he asked why not, she said, clarity is the last thing that you're clinging to and you must let it go. When Kavanaugh said that she always seemed to have clarity, the very kind of clarity he was looking for, Mother Teresa laughed and said, oh, I've never had clarity. What I've always tried to have is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. The Israelites wanted to hold on to the certainty that they had, the certainty that they wanted to be safe in the new land. In verse two, it says they heard God's message, but they didn't have enough trust to act on it. We, like Professor Kavanaugh, also want to see the path laid out before us. How Many times in our lives do we pray, Lord, please make things clear. Please, God, make it evident. Please, God, give us clarity. But without faith, Scripture says, it's impossible to please God. It's one thing to say we believe in God. It's another to actively put our trust in Him and to say, we trust you. 
please help us to trust you more. Even though we can't see where we're going, we trust that you are going to guide us, that you're going to shut doors and open doors and bring help and bring counsel. We trust in you, Jesus. We trust you. We turn to you when nothing is clear. We cling to you, Jesus, when we are frightened. We follow you, Lord, to unknown places. God's leading will bring us great rest if our faith is in him. Not in what we want, not in what we can be assured of, but in Him. Now this naturally leads us to the next action being highlighted in this passage, which is obedience. We can believe in God and still not obey. Yet true faith will produce obedience in our lives if we let it. We can know with certainty the right way to go and then turn deliberately in a different direction. Hello, Jonah. A few places in this passage, the writer highlights disobedience. And again, Psalm 95 is quoted in verse 7, which reminds us that disobedience is tied to the condition of our hearts. When you hear God's voice reminding you about what is right, the, the author says, don't harden your heart make a different choice. But often we can be defensive. We have all kinds of reasons and rationalizations about why it's impossible for us to change. God's rest here is directly tied into obedience. The Lord is our shepherd who leads us beside still waters, but only those who are obedient allow themselves to be led. God walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death where we are not afraid because his presence is with us. God is with us, yet we are actively aware and seeking his presence. Let us not be confused. God loves everyone and is available to all who call on his name, yet it is those who obey him, those whose hearts are open to his leading, who know his true rest. God is not an add-on in our already full and selfish lives. He wants to be the center of who we are and understand him for who he is. He doesn't want to be just a giver of peace and blessing to our chaotic lives when we clamor for it. He doesn't want to be an afterthought when we disregard him and live the way we want. In our rebelliousness, we can reject God and then demand that he be who we need him to be right now. We don't need to belabor this point. Each day is laid before us and we decide who we will be in Christ and how we will act. Right now we're being pressed in on all sides. We've talked about this over and over. But who we are in those times, in these times, is more evident. This week I read an article about character. How important character is in a Christian's life, in a leader's life, and the Holy Spirit talked to me about the places where I'm not being obedient. The places where I don't have a soft and pliable heart to the Lord. The piece was about giving grace to other people. It was about being the same person in public and in private, no matter what. 
It was about being self-centered and justifying terrible decisions. You and I know the places where we are disobedient to the Lord. The writer of Hebrews is pointedly telling us that having a hard heart means that we are restless. And in our restlessness, we can find reasons to blame others and situations around us. But our focus, our focus should be in our restlessness. Our focus should be ourselves, our own obedience first. Open our heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. That's what the Lord wants from us. God commands his people to hear him and then to act accordingly. Today, today let us choose to trust. Today, let us choose to obey. The last action we're going to talk about from this passage is pausing from work. This can be interpreted as any kind of professional or personal responsibilities. It can also mean that we stop striving in all of the good that we try and do. We can't earn God's favor. He already loves us. There's nothing more we can add to that. But in this passage, we are reminded about how God rested on the seventh day of creation and how God wants his people to also rest from their labor. This is the only place in the New Testament where the term Sabbath rest is mentioned. And the writer connects the value of differentiating who we are from what we do, which is first given in the law. It's an act of trust to stop. It's an act of trust to stop working, to acknowledge God's presence in worship and in rest. We are not greater than the Lord Almighty who has given us a model from resting, from everything we are trying to achieve here. However, rest is more than being idle. On the Sabbath, everyone was released from the responsibility of work. It was meant to be a weekly reminder of God's deliverance and presence among them. We know the experience of being so fatigued that every part of us cries out for a break. We can be really overtaxed with the pressure of the things that we need to accomplish. To have a weekend or a day when we stop is necessary for our souls, as long as we acknowledge that, this, um, that simply not working doesn't bring the rest we need. It's hard to set aside our anxiety and our to-do lists and just unwind, which is why we are meant to carve out part of our day to honor God and find renewal for our souls in Him, to set aside time from our need to hold on tight to everything and just relax, finding certainty in Jesus. A day of rest is actively seeking God's Spirit, listening to what He has to say to us. Yet so often our days off look like just every other day. We have a hard time unplugging from email, we worry about what needs to be done. We have anxiety maybe about the things in our lives, the things that need to be fixed, our children, our grandchildren. We can hoard our time and make it an idol. 
when we stop, all of the issues that we have set aside come to the forefront, which sometimes is why we keep busy to avoid them. We don't want to be legalistic about what rest has to mean, but too often we neglect. We neglect to breathe, to breathe and to seek the Lord on his day. God wants to take care of us and nourish every part of us. God wants to assure us of his mighty power and bless us with his presence and perfect grace. I'm speaking to you as someone who has struggled with the truth of what weekly rest is supposed to mean. We are made for a day or two of just breathing in deeply of God's presence and finding peace. A Sabbath day is meant to focus our hearts on the Lord. Because without that pause, without that stopping, we can forget who is greater and what is more important. Jesus tells us that all who are weary should come to him and find rest. Not come to his teachings or to his church, not to his beautiful world that he has given us to enjoy, not to come simply on a vacation or a good book. Jesus tells us to come to him. A Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God, says the writer of Hebrews. So let's make every effort to find God's presence just by being with him. A blog I take reminded us this week how the parable of the vine and the branches is an excellent metaphor for Lent. We are to abide in Jesus, who is the source of all life. Lent is a good time to check our connection with him, to see what our trust in him looks like. Is he greater than anything else to us? Lent is a time of the Lord's pruning, if we let it be. It is a time of lament and allowing God to bring new life out of ashes for his glory and for the sake of the church. Lent is a time of recommitment to the Savior who died for us and who invites us on a salvation journey to a place we cannot get to on our own. We who have believed have entered into that rest and we want to continue to put our trust in the God who is leading us. A question we might ask ourselves then from this passage is where in our life we are lacking God's rest. Do we trust God for our future and for the sin that so easily entangles us? Do we trust him enough to let go of our schedules and our to-do lists? Spend some time now with the Lord, allowing him to show you his rest for you, for the places in your soul which are unsettled. Let us take time in prayer. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.